1: I know you'll be alright Even when times get hard And you feel like you're in the dark You will see Just how beautiful life can be When you soften your heart You can finally start
0: To live your truth Life.
4: Welcome back to The Truthiest Life. This week's episode is super special to me. It's another episode on addiction and somebody who I look up to so much in the influencer space. And it's somebody whose podcast I've been featured on. It's maybe where you found me at one point. It is with my friend Ariel Lori, who if you don't know, you will soon get to know really well. And Ariel is Awesome. And there's so much nuance to her. And I think as you learn about her story and overcoming addiction and kind of just the way she speaks, you'll pick up on that too. What I love about this episode is Ariel really explains addiction in a way that I think we forget about sometimes. Or maybe we don't know because we don't have somebody close to us who's struggled with addiction at that level. But The one thing that I know about addicts is that it's not that like they love alcohol or drugs or that they want to be wastes of lives or deadbeats, all those negative words we throw around when we talk about addicts, but rather there's something underneath all of that that makes them feel so sensitive to the outside world that it's unbearable. And when they take their first sip or their first pill, all of a sudden there's this numbing agent that allows them to feel less separate from the rest of the world. I've never been an addict, but I certainly can understand how alcohol has had that effect on me socially before, right? Most of us can relate to the fact that having a drink loosens us up. It makes us more talkative. It makes us feel more comfortable in our own skin and It's easy to see how somebody who's extra sensitive to all that stimulus would kind of feel like, okay, well, I don't function really well as just myself, but when I drink this substance or I take this pill, all of a sudden, all my fears about belonging kind of go away. And I think that's what so many things come down to this desire to want to belong, but this inability to do so and alcohol and prescription pills as Ariel's going to talk about are two really seemingly innocuous things because they're legal that enter our lives that easily become abused by the people who are maybe struggling the most in day-to-day life. And I'm sure you've already looked at Ariel's Instagram and you'll look at her page and say, well, what does this girl have to struggle with? And I think that's kind of what I hope we all take away from this episode is you don't need to come from a hard past to struggle with something. You don't need to have a difficult current situation to be thrown into An addiction or something really terrible. And I think that the more we understand that we're all human beings with the same types of troubles and the same types of thoughts and the same types of fears, the better we can show up and take our lens of judgment off and the better we can drop below our initial thoughts of judgment and see that it's just another human being. Anyway, Ariel is so forthcoming in this episode. And like I've mentioned a bunch, we are talking about addiction when it comes to alcohol and prescription pills and illegal substances as well. So that is a content warning. Ariel does again vividly tell her story. So if anybody will feel triggered or they're just in a place of maybe dealing with their own addiction where they feel like this could set them back, this episode may not be for you. For those of of you who are comfortable listening to stories about addiction and want to know Ariel better, I think you will find this absolutely inspiring and so, so, so interesting. I just want to take a second to thank you all for your awesome reviews that I checked out on iTunes recently. I try not to check in with those so frequently because they can really throw me off. Uh, That's, you know, something that I struggle with is negative reviews without constructive criticism, which sometimes they happen. But those positive reviews for those of you who have left them or even your constructive feedback reviews go really, really far for me and for The Truthiest Life and spreading the word about, what we do here, which is showing our human and making a safe place for all of us to exist in this world. Anyway, I'm back from vacation and I am feeling so alive and excited about my different types of work from this podcast to Outway to my course, which I'm going to be running again on March 21st in just three weeks. Can't even believe it. You can find that over at forkthenoise.com forward slash HF, where I teach all my students how to listen, honor, and trust their body when it comes to specifically hunger and fullness. If you've ever struggled with overeating portions, feeling like you just love food too much, this is the course for you. You will learn so, so, so much. Okay, last thing I want to say is spring is in the air. I don't know where you live, but where I live. Just yesterday, it was 21 degrees feels like seven, and today it was 50 degrees. So we are on the upward trajectory, and that just feels really good, and I'm so excited for all the growth that spring has for us all in store. It's been a tough, tough, tough one full year of pandemic, and it is time for us all to begin to heal and allow nature to play a role in that. Sending all of my love, let's jump into this week's episode. Today's guest is Arielle Lori. She's a lifestyle, wellness, and health influencer. If you don't already follow, you can go check her out. Her Instagram is at Arielle Laurie. Her blog is The Blonde Files and her podcast, which is probably my favorite form of content that you put out is called the Blonde Files podcast. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed in the least.
1: So welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You were one of my OG guests. You were, I didn't go back to check, but you were one of the first people that I had on my podcast. Really? It
4: was the, you, you already yeah. had like a cult following because I remember all these new people had, didn't just follow me, they reached out to me and they were like, just heard you on, on Ariel's podcast. So your audience really knows you and i know that if anybody listening like isn't in the influencer space most people not everybody has that effect on their audience so that that's amazing that was the beginning
1: thank you i'll have to go back and look but it was definitely in the first like i want to say first six months wow and it will be two years this april so congrats. Thank you. Congrats to you because I love your show and I'm excited to have you back on mine. How are you liking podcasting? Well, I was just going to
4: ask you. um, I absolutely love it. (laughs) It feels the most natural to me. I love to talk to people and I love to know more about people. And this is kind of an easy way for me to do so without people being like, why are you asking so many
1: questions? (laughs) So I can relate to that. I'm the same way because I don't so much want to be like the talker. I just I'm so curious. And I like learning from other people. And I i am the same way I ask so many questions. So it's like very, natural. you do a
4: really great job bringing on all different types of experts, but like really experts in the medical field. And anybody you bring on is always new and novel to me. So it's not somebody that's kind of like, okay, I know what they're gonna say. They're always interesting people. And then I think you do a great job like you said like kind of being the back seat and then asking them the questions which I'm hope that I improve upon as I get better because I think that's what makes a great podcast. So so what do you most enjoy actually of all different types of content creation that you do? You have your blog, you do amazing recipes, Instagram,
1: podcast. My favorite is definitely podcasting. The thing that I was so resistant to. I mean, I'm I guess I'm an introverted extrovert, but I get energy from being alone. I don't love like Being overly social. (laughs) I get drained talking to people for long periods of time. Like, that's just how I am. And for a long time, I was so ashamed of that. And that's partially why I became like an alcoholic and an addict because I needed something to like lubricate those situations so that I had the energy to do all of that stuff and feel comfortable and not burn out. So it's something that I finally like accepted about myself in sobriety like, oh, this is okay. This is just how I am. And I can nurture that in different ways. But I remember a few years ago, people were starting to ask me to go on their podcasts. And I always said no, I always made up excuses. And then I felt like bad about myself because I was like, come on, Ariel, like, just do it. You know, I've I know that like walking through fear is the best feeling and it's the way to like get to the other side. And finally, I said yes to one podcast. And I was like sweating my way through it. Are you sweating right
4: now? You seem
1: pretty chill. Oh no, (laughs) Yeah, I was so nervous. And so that held me back from doing it for a few years. And finally, I was like, you know what I'm just gonna start it so it's funny that it's now like my favorite thing and then of course I like creating recipes and doing all of that but I just feel like it's a it's a better way for me to connect with people and it really fills me up and then
4: after the hour you can just you know walk away from it and not continue the conversation which is great for your personality as well
1: (laughs) totally yeah I mean I in the beginning I was like batching interviews and I would do like four in a day and I was like I'm I just can't do yep. that. And if I do like a really big one because I still get nervous and you know I'm very sensitive so I'm I react lot to that energetically so if I have like a really big one that I'm nervous about or something I need to like rest the next day and do things that aren't so like social and focus more on you know things that I can do alone stuff Well, like I think that. even out the door
4: everyone is now already understanding why you were on my dream guest list I had about 10 to 15 people when I came up with this idea and you were on it for me because I mean hopefully we'll get into kind of the addiction part but I mean everything that you said unrelated to the addiction maybe these were the things that made maybe led you to addiction in general, you're just so comfortable being who you are now, even if it's not what a typical influencer is. You know, we expect influencers to get on their story, to have a high-pitched voice, to um, really sell us in on a high-energy wellness life, you know? And <laughs> your your voice is a big part of who you are, and you talk slowly, and I've never seen you in an influencer photo of, like, 15 girls. You know, you're just in your lane which I love side note I yeah. just want to say you have the most amazing vocabulary of anybody that I know uh, really yeah I always walk away or from your talking to you or reading your posts I either learn a new word or like a new way to use a word like you used that word lubricate a few minutes ago just like uh-huh. beautifully
1: in there love that <laughs> I was wondering like what I said that you were referring to. That's thank you. I appreciate that. Your website, you had the you have the word eponymous,
4: if I'm even Uh saying it right. And I'm like, hip hop, hip hop anonymous. (laughs) That's where my head goes. (laughs) But okay. anyway, the point is, you know, your your Instagram is at Ariel Laurie, and I'm sure people have already gone to go get a visual on you. I never had a chance to get a visual on you before I talked to you on your podcast maybe I looked at your Instagram real quick before saying yes, but I didn't have time to prejudge you or come up with preconceived ideas. So I'm kind of glad that I did because even though your grid is, it's still a perfect representation of who you are. It's not fake. Like you are creative. You love a good, aesthetically pleasing looking grid situation. You've got beautiful clothes and recipes and, you know, you never look like you roll out of bed. But I've heard you say on another podcast that you were on that, like, you're constantly trying to prove that you're a person of substance and you're up against that. So I can feel when somebody doesn't like me or has or that I know that they're talking bad about me behind my back. But for you, people are saying it to you like I've seen horrible comments left on your page and people treat you like you're like not a human being. So what is that like?
1: It's really tough. I will say that for the most part, probably until the last year, I think that the pandemic and what everybody is going through has made people really sensitive, really hurt, obviously. And I think a lot of people don't know where to direct that. So I feel like people who are in the public and influencers and people that they can kind of have access to are easy targets, kind of like low hanging fruit. And then in my situation, it's like I'm married to a guy twice my age who's very successful. I think I fit this kind of archetype, you know, like if you just look at my page, because Instagram is a highlight reel. And if you just look at my pictures, like I get it. I always joke like, oh, I look like a basic bitch. like. (laughs) And that's something that, you know, I think that going back to school initially was kind of like this way for me to prove to people that I'm not that and obviously like doing anything for other people and especially for perception and like that's all tied up in ego, right? And that's mm-hmm. like not sustainable and not a good reason to do that. But it does get to me. You know, it really gets it to me. And then of course, I don't know how much of it is my projection. Like I'm sure that there are people who don't think that.
4: Your audience does really know you. There are that handful of people that say mean things, but the people that come to your page, they're they're there for the substance and you get it if you go just a tiny bit further than just the pretty pictures.
1: Yeah, it's hard. You know, the the rational side of me wants to say like hurt people, hurt people. And when somebody is saying these things to a stranger, it's because it's coming from a place of pain in themselves. You know, you're not like a very happy, fulfilled person who's just like, hey, you're a gold digger whore, you know, mm-hmm. like people <laughs> don't do that if they're in a good place generally. So I I know that, but at the same time, like we are human beings. And I think that that has been kind of just stripped away in the way that like we're treating each other online. It's, I think it's gotten really bad. And I know that you just took a break. From social media, and you're gonna come on my show after this, right? So we're gonna like get way into that. Good.
4: I think that most people have dealt with the quote-unquote hate over the last few years. As you know, f the haters, put your blinders on. And I, I personally really appreciate that. I felt like even just talking about it, you felt the feeling of what it. You said you're sensitive early on, but you felt like even just replaying it and saying it hurts is Mm -hmm. not something we hear a lot. And I think that that's the perfect way to go about getting mean comments to say that hurts my feelings like hey hello Mm -hmm. everyone I'm a human being too because that wakes people up and that shows them that you're not this untouchable thing, even though you're married a man older than you and he's famous and successful and all the ideas that they have about you, you know, it kind of breaks you down into none of that matters because no matter who you marry, no matter what you do in your professional career, no matter how gorgeous you are, you still have human being emotions that we all have. Like there's that Mm -hmm. relatability factor. So I appreciate you saying that. So you go to your page and we see really awesome recipes. Oh, by the way, I love your
1: TikTok. I'm a follower of your TikTok. I really (laughs) like it. I feel like I post things on my TikTok that I will not post on my Instagram. (laughs)
4: There's like some blend of like recipes, but yeah, you really give it to us when it comes to the cosmetic surgery things, which I do want to get to later on. So your feed, right? It's got matcha lattes, it's got grain-free granola, you know, all that good stuff, beautifully. Oh my gosh, you make amazing like sauces from nut cheeses, very inspired. (laughs) One day I'm going to really put the legwork in to do it. But your life has not always been this beautiful display of wellness, right? Uh, far from it. (laughs) How would you describe
1: your life about, I think it's six years ago now? It'll be seven years on Monday, which is crazy. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you. My life before was, let's see if I could... Sum it up in one word. It was just a shitstorm. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but it was dark at the time or it was at least very dark at the end. But yeah, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction became a big part of my life when I was around 18 and I had consequences from the start. You know, I think that in retrospect, I see that I was like treating different things with drugs and alcohol. And so they became the solution to feel comfortable in life and to feel at ease and to feel confident and to feel fearless and all of these things. I I chased that for 10 years and I went to rehab, I was in and out of rehab, in and out of detoxes. I would have these brief periods of like getting it together because... At the time I was in such denial that I was an alcoholic or a drug addict. I thought it would be the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to me. Like my life would be over at 21. If I couldn't drink, you know, I always put externals first. Like, you know, I said, if I just Go to school if I finished school because I dropped out of Syracuse. It was too cold for me. Mm. And, um, too cold for me if, too. Yeah, and like if I got the right car and the right job and the right apartment and the right relationship and this and that and the other, all the external things, I thought that that would solve my my drinking problem, my drug problem. At the time, I didn't even admit that it was a drinking problem. I just thought that it would solve the issues in my life, and then I could drink like a normal person and be happy. And of course, none of that happened. And um, by the end of You know, I was just in like months long blackouts, living alone. The boyfriend left. I had no friends, wasn't talking to my family, having seizures all the time, you know, just pretty much trying to be unconscious all the time. You know, I didn't want to die necessarily, but I also didn't, I didn't know how to live and I I just kind of gave up.
4: Do you mean that you didn't know how to live without the numbing agents?
1: Yeah, it got to a point where I knew that I was physically dependent. That was such a terrible place to be. How do you know that? that?
4: How do we know that?
1: So I knew because I would go into withdrawal if I didn't drink or if I didn't take a Xanax or whatever. Those were my two big ones. I was also doing a lot of Adderall and cocaine. And, you know, it was like I was playing pharmacist. I was Mm -hmm. trying to find that sweet spot. But I would have a seizure if I didn't take a Xanax um, a day. I would have a seizure if I didn't drink like all day, every day. I mean, it was bad. My body was like, highly, highly dependent on substances at 27, 28 years old. Mm -hmm. And... So I knew that I'd been to rehab enough times. I'd been to detox enough times. I knew I was physically dependent. I knew I couldn't stop on my own. And I also couldn't ask for help. You know, I was just so ashamed. I had asked for help before and I'd gotten it. And once again, here I was, you know, and it was just like, there's so much shame and addiction and I didn't make the choice for myself. You know, I got to the point where my family got on a plane and flew out and showed up at my apartment and I opened the door. In such dramatic fashion, dropped and had a grand mal seizure, Mm. like on the spot, and was taken in the hospital, and that was it. But when I was finally like coherent enough to have a little bit of clarity, I knew that that was it, and. I'm so so grateful for that.
4: So for 10 years from 18 to 28 you were addicted to alcohol and various drugs and in and out of different rehab centers as well.
1: Mm -hmm.
4: I have grown up with alcoholism and addiction around me so I'm really familiar that this is usually not a go to rehab and you're fixed situation. Mm -hmm. In fact I've dealt with a loved one um, in and out for I mean I'm 32 so about 20 years of my conscious knowing and it's happened before that but I think if you don't have a loved one that struggles with addiction or they've never been to rehab, you might think rehab is, is it. You would think that the person going to rehab would recognize that that's rock bottom, but For those times that you did go to rehab, for you, was it like, oh, I don't have a problem? This is just a tool? Or is it like, I know I have a problem, but it's not even going to stop me?
1: The first time that I went to rehab, I was like 20 years old. So at that point, I was like, I don't have a problem. I'm doing what my friends did. I happened to get caught because I got a DUI. Oh. The next time... It was kind of like every two or three years, I would go to rehab. The next time I tried to to deflect and blamed it on love addiction. So it was the relationship that I was in. And, you know, we're very manipulative. And I was able to convince everybody there that that was the problem. And everybody at the rehab, you convinced the rehab. Yes. Convince the rehab, convince my family. (laughs) (laughs) That's so terrible. I remember my parents flew out. I was in Arizona for a family weekend. And I remember like vividly where I was sitting, everything, talking to my Dad, and being like, you know, this is really the problem. It's this guy that I'm with, and I really, I'm not an alcoholic. And I remember my dad being like, "Yeah, I really don't think you are." And it's like I was drinking on the plane back from that rehab, you know, like, and within a week, back to my old antics, and then I got arrested for drugs, and you know, it just like progressively gets worse. I believe that alcoholism is a progressive and terminal illness. You know, it, it gets worse; it never gets better. And so that's how I treat it. You know, I treat it like with a daily maintenance kind of approach, just as I would if I had some kind of terminal disease. That's how we approached it in
4: in my house growing up, too, or how I was Mm -hmm. thought to think about it. But I don't think that's something that everybody kind of realizes. How close to death do you think you got or were there multiple occasions where you were pretty close?
1: So when I finally got sober and got to the hospital, they said that I probably wouldn't have made it through the weekend. So That's your, how parents close I was. Showed,
4: your parents showed up at your door, maybe intuitively knowing or.
1: Yeah. So they had done a wellness check on me because I wasn't answering my phone and they knew that I was living alone. The boyfriend had left. They knew that, you know, that it was really hard to get in touch with me and they knew that things were bad. So they called the police. I was living in West Hollywood at the time and they came and they tried to knock on my door. I didn't answer. They looked through the window and they saw me face down unresponsive. And so they had to break through the window and take me to the hospital. And I don't really remember any of this, but I somehow got out of the hospital, got back to the apartment, kept doing what I was doing. At that point, I had a neighbor who was also a drug dealer and he was injecting me with God knows what. He says it was B12. I don't think he was a big vitamin guy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I was, you know, drinking whatever I could get my hands on. I hadn't eaten and God knows how long. And so it was just like, you know, I was just shutting down along the way. I think there are so many times that I cheated death. I mean, I would wake up in the hospital not knowing how I got there. I would wake up in my car across the state in the passenger seat, you know, having no idea how I got there. Mm -hmm. I drove drunk all the time. I yeah, I mean, there's no reason that I should be sitting here right now.
4: And you are from Rhode Island. And then I know
1: that some of the rehabs were in Florida and you had some time there. How did you end up in L.A.? So yeah, I spent some time in Florida. I went to rehab there. I went to a few rehabs in other states from there and then went back. And my friend was murdered in Florida and I found her. And Mm -hmm. so at that point, my family came and kind of like whisked me out of there. And they were like, we don't know what is going on in your life. We don't know who these people are that you're hanging out with, how you're getting in these situations. They knew obviously that I had a drinking problem, but they could only do so much. You know, I would go to rehab and get out and I was an adult. Was this a friend from your drug alcohol date? A party friend, I guess I should call it. Yeah, we were party friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, my parents came and took me away. And I was living at home with them for a summer. And a girlfriend of mine was living in California. And she's like, why don't you come out here for two weeks? So I said, "Okay," And I came out for two weeks and I never went back. (laughs) And how old were you then? Around twenty six? Like 25, 26. Yeah. Okay. And
4: did you have a job during this? Like now
1: I only know you as a content creator. Were you working? No, I wasn't working. I had gotten some money when my grandfather passed away, which is terrible. Mm -hmm. I hate even saying that. But I was kind of living off that. And then like... I would live with a few girlfriends and I would kind of couch hop here and there and then I would move in with a different boyfriend and I was really good at like glomming on to people. <laughs>
4: and it's just, it's kind of funny for me because you're like the opposite of that. You're so hardworking mm-hmm. at everything that you do. I can't even imagine what you looked like during this time because like I said, go to Ariel's page. Look at how, how picture perfect she looks all the time and a very natural, <laughs> I laugh saying natural because you're so open about cosmetic surgery, <laughs> but you're okay and we have the same approach i think to to all things cosmetic you know and makeup and all those things is like i want to look good but i want to look natural and i want to be low maintenance right i've heard you say yes. that before and i'm just like that's exactly it like i don't want to like wake up and put on the things and do the hair like whatever it is to make it easier so during your addiction days did you have the same like care for yourself of making yourself look fresh for lack of a better word
1: i definitely didn't look fresh i mean i was in my 20s so they- Things were like a little perkier and like I could sleep with makeup on and wake up the next day and look fine, you Mm -hmm. know, and on two hours of sleep, like so unfair that we get that in our 20s (laughs) true. and like teens. And, you know, I was cute for the most part. I look back on old pictures, though, when I was like drunk and I'm like, oh, God, like, you know, because you go back and you keep putting makeup on and think you look really good. And by the end of the night, it's like clown status. (laughs) So, you know, I I definitely by the time I got sober, though, I was 28. And I did not look like fresh as a daisy because I had been smoking a pack a day Mm. for God knows how long I was like averaging probably two, three hours of sleep a night. And Drinking like a fish and uh you know I was living hard. Kind of a weird question, but I mean I
4: feel like I, I can very much imagine your life now. You wake up, uh you meditate, you make your matcha, you have like a delicious oatmeal that like I would like to order from you. Um, you go for a walk, you do Melissa Wood Health Pilates, you know, whatever. You okay, anyway, I got like your I'm day- a walking stereotype. <laughs> no, no, no. No. You take your dog for a walk, okay. Then you're probably tucked into bed at like 8 p.m. Like, I feel like I got it down, right? You got it pretty well. Yeah. How would you describe
1: your day at age 25, 26? Like, so I would probably wake up around like 10 or 11. Mm. I would take an Adderall go outside, have a coffee and a couple of cigarettes. <laughs> Definitely start drinking because once the Adderall kicks in, you know, you need to like bring it down a little bit because mm. it was too much for me, too much energy. So I'd find that sweet spot depending on like, you know, I'm thinking back to like when I lived with some girlfriends of mine, we'd like go to the beach, hang out, start partying maybe at like four or five, get some Coke and start. And that was it. And it was like any food. Oh, um, <laughs> oh, I was actually thinking about this the other day. Like I would probably eat one meal a day and it would sometimes be like at the end of the night, mm-hmm. you know, when I, all, everything would wear off and all of a sudden I'd be starving and I would eat like half a pizza. Got it. Okay. And then you'd go to sleep at like what time? <laughs> like two or three would be good. Sometimes like five or six. Wow. Okay.
4: And did you, I guess, like when it wears off, you start to feel deplete again, and then you kind of have to start that cycle over? Is that what it feels mm-hmm. like?
1: Yeah. The come down was really, really terrible. And I never understood how, even just from drinking, I never understood how I could go out with friends and say, I was like keeping it together and having like a quote unquote normal night. And we would go to dinner and maybe go get some drinks after or something. And then everyone like calls it a night at 11 for whatever reason, for me, like once the alcohol started wearing Mm -hmm. off, it was so depressing And I think because like I was using it to cover up things. So once that started wearing off, it's like the numbing agent wearing off. I was starting to exist in reality again, right? And and see the things that I'm trying to stuff down. Reality was just intolerable for me. And so I did my best to like numb it without being totally out of control. But of course, that didn't work out very well.
4: And I've heard you say that like your growing up was, you know, perfectly fine. You went to private mm-hmm. school, everything was fine. So it's it's not like you had this hard childhood that was the hard part. Do you think it, it's just your personality type being so hyper? sensitive and kind of not knowing that, or genetics. What do you think primed you to
1: kind of become an addict? It's interesting because I think in general I believe in kind of a biopsychosocial approach, right? It's it's partially genetics, it's partially environmental. I think that those two things play a big role, and, and I've, I'm sure you've heard this before. Like genetics loads the gun, and the environment pulls the trigger. Mm. Kind of a violent.
4: Yeah, it's a little violent, <laughs> uh, but, it's, but it's accurate. But that's, yeah. That's not-
1: Yeah. um, So for me, I didn't have any of that. I don't have alcoholism or addiction anywhere in my family, as far as I know. And I didn't have a hard upbringing. And yeah, I talk about it. I have, I went to private school. I'm like, I drove a Volvo for God's sake. Like I was a responsible person. And I've looked back in hindsight a lot. And what I've been able to recognize is that I always just felt a little bit different, like I just felt a little bit separate from everybody else. And I think probably that does have to do with just feeling more sensitive, being more introverted, having a little bit of a different energy. And I always thought that I had to be like very social and like the life of the party. And and I think that what happened was like over the years, I was not honoring who I really was. And so it was like just putting this facade up. And like not being true to myself and, um you know, not being true to my values and how I was raised and dropping out of school and seeing all my friends go on to accomplish things. And like it just caused me so much shame. And so that kind of fueled it, you know, and then it, so it was like a cycle
4: that's the word that you keep kind of bringing up, the shame. And I feel like you have the shame, then you drink and it goes away. And then you probably make bad decisions while you're drinking or on drugs, which (laughs) then the drugs wear off and you feel more shame for those decisions. So you go back to the drinking because it takes it away. Like it's easy to just see from an outsider how it happens. And it's easy to judge if you never have a conversation with an addict. But as soon as you you talk to somebody and you hear it, it's like, I don't know, that could happen to me. You know, like I had the different... Environment, I guess, or the different gun, for lack of a better word there. You know, one of my factors somehow pivoted me a little bit to the left. But so many things I feel like could have could have been me. And it's so important to understand the mentality because living with shame for anything is there's no reason for it. Right. I think there's no reason for it.
1: Yeah. You know, I do hear people say that like it's not a disease and it's more of a moral failing and it's a choice. And I always say, who says that? I still hear it a lot, surprisingly, but I always try to tell people like I didn't want to be doing what I was doing. I wanted more than anything to be able to not drink for like two consecutive days, you know, and I could not do it. It got to the point where it was like a primal need, just as much, if not more so than eating and drinking water and Sleeping, you know, it just like it overrode every other impulse in my brain. So it really was kind of my primary purpose, like a survival thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it's probably hard for people to understand who haven't experienced that.
3: Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days, like literally. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish, not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear.
0: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. Paid
3: by up-level rewards. Paid participation required. after portrayal.
2: Attention all listeners. Are you ready to earn $750? Well, get ready because I'm about to introduce you to GetMy750.com, the ultimate way to earn. Here's the scoop. Instead of just streaming shows or playing games on your phone for nothing, you have the chance to earn additional cash. That's right. From trying out new subscriptions to playing your favorite mobile games, you can get extra cash in your pocket. Simply sign up at getmy750.com and follow the instructions to start earning immediately. So, what are you waiting for? Turn your favorite apps into real cash with getmy750.com. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to earn rewards for things you're already doing on your phone. Check out getmy750.com today. That's right. Get started right now at getmy750.com. Just go to getmy750.com or Google Get My 750 Cash. Follow the simple instructions and get your $750. That's GetMy750.com. GetMy750.com.
4: I think by talking about the seizures, I had my friend Rocco come on, who is also sober for a bunch of years now. And, you know, his story isn't the same as yours, but there's there's a lot of overlap in the times to rehab, the rehab, the final straw, the things that happened, how close to death he got as well. But I think when we talk about alcoholism and like you said, all of your friends were doing it and we normalize alcohol so much to know that or even Xanax and Adderall. I mean, I've actually never I've been terrified of prescription pills because I saw what they did early on. I've known about them, you know, causing seizures since I was eight years old. So that that to me was always like, wait, that's not that's not a fun party drug. That's like what the what the heck is going to happen? But I don't think that most people recognize, you know, how it goes from a prescription pill or a legal substance like alcohol at 21 at least can lead to seizures. Like that makes it so much more real. Like who would think that
1: something that we are allowed to do could have those effects? Yeah, that was my greatest fear, too. And I remember when I first went to rehab when I was 20, I didn't know about that. I didn't know that you could have a seizure from alcohol withdrawal. I didn't I hadn't gotten into benzos or anything at that point, but I learned about it then. And it's like it's very hard to go to rehab and then go back to drinking with like a head full of recovery. (laughs) It's like, you have to really try to compartmentalize. But at that point I was aware. And so I, part of what led me to Xanax actually, interestingly, and I never really made the connection until right now is the fear of having a seizure. I was like, well, I want to keep drinking. Like Mm -hmm. I want to drink but I don't want to have a seizure from withdrawal. And they use benzos to help with alcohol withdrawal, Mm. ironically. So that kind of led me. And then I found, you know, Xanax, Valium, Clonopin, anything that ended in azepam, I was like, sign me up. And I mean, it's kind of like alcohol in a pill form. I'm not trying. I hope I'm not promoting this. (laughs) And and I hope
4: we'll be super clear that that's not the point.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it was just like, I'm an anxious person. I'm a sensitive person. So all of a sudden, I felt the complete opposite of that. And it was like, oh, I have arrived. I mean, it was like a spiritual experience for me.
4: No, of course. When finally, like that facade to be the high energy person to fit in, all of a sudden, you could be that person more easily because, you know, the tension in your shoulders relax and suddenly Mm -hmm. socializing is easy. And that's like, you know, the normal thing to do. It definitely makes sense. And I know plenty of people that have had seizures from Adderall and prescription pills alone. So even Mm -hmm. though... In a controlled setting, it could be used to formulate to help you taper off of that. In a non-controlled setting, as many people end up just because they're prescribed these drugs, it has some really
1: detrimental long-term effects. (laughs) And you're right. I mean, it is really normalized. I can laugh about drugs and alcohol. You know, I'm not like so uptight, but I hear so many people who talk about just doing Adderall because they don't want to eat and because they Mm want to be able to drink and public people. Mm -hmm. And same with Xanax you know, it's really normalized. And especially in LA, like very over prescribed, I think like everybody has a prescription for Adderall and Xanax, you know, Mm. it's like Tic Tacs and drinking too. I mean, I don't really think that Drinking is problematic, but I think it has been kind of glamorized, and yeah, I think a lot of people don't really know like the risks. Not to be a buzzkill, if anybody is listening to this, but enjoying to be a, a t-
4: glass of wine, <laughs> an-, an appropriate buzzkill. I think it's a. I mean, I'm a big proponent of someone who's not sober, but just always taking a look at that relationship and recognizing why you're having that glass of wine. And right. can you? I think really the the big thing for me is can you have that one glass of wine? Because mm-hmm. I mean, most addicts can't have one glass of wine. It turns into a long string of things. Okay. So you went to the hospital and that was like your last wake up call. You had that big seizure and it was just like, this is my time to get well. But how did you actually go well? Did you
1: start going to AA meetings? Do you have other tools? Yeah, so I went to rehab for 90 days. And then I went to another rehab for another 90 days. And then I, yeah, so I was in a pretty controlled environment for like six months, which I needed. And then I came back to LA and I went into sober living. So my first year of sobriety was in a sober environment. What does that mean sober living when you returned? So sober living is like a house where they have like a house manager and different staff. And there's like eight or 10 or 12 women. Usually it's by gender. It's a sorority
4: without the alcohol, like a sober sorority. sober
1: sorority, um, you know, I was 28 at the time, right? And a lot of the people were younger and not really taking it seriously, but I just kind of like put my head down and I got a little job and I found a recovery community in LA and I just started like rebuilding my life. You know, I got sober. I got rid of my apartment. I got rid of my car. I had nothing at 28, which a lot of people at that age feel like, all right, I'm sliding into 30. I need to like get married and have babies and like mm-hmm. get the show on the road. And it was terrifying, but it was also exhilarating because i i knew that i had a second chance at life you know
4: what was keeping you bounds
1: on hard days
4: On on days where you felt extra sensitive or whatever your triggers were for previously using alcohol, uh, was it just the fact that being in that sober community kind of really took away a lot of those pressures?
1: Yeah, definitely. I had a lot of sober friends and people who were around my time sobriety just kind of starting out and figuring it out. And we were going through the same things together and people who had kind of walked the road before me who were helping me. But really, like I was so grateful that first year, the first few years, it was shocking to me that I could go to the grocery store without drinking a bottle of wine before. And I remember getting my first car on sobriety and having like valid registration because like going to the DMV and like doing that boring shit was not something I was going to do before, mm. you know, and, and I just felt like I don't know. I can't even explain it. Some people call it a pink cloud, but I felt so good. And I was so grateful that I had a chance to start over. And I know that some people don't have this experience getting sober. And I work with people who have a really hard time and are having cravings all the time and are going through hard things. But I was just kind of like enamored with this new life that I had. And so I was willing to go through anything. And I was kind of almost grateful too to be feeling anything good or bad. You know, I was like, I went through a really painful breakup at a year sober. And I remember lying there in bed, crying, kind of writhing in like discomfort, but just like knowing so deep down that there was something better on the other side, just having that Mm -hmm. faith. And that's something that I got through like, The fellowship that I found.
4: Now your life, what sorts of people do you surround yourself with so that you can be the true you? Are you very selective about friendships? Have you made new friendships?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I surround myself with all kinds of different people. I have friends who are my age and have similar interests and then I'm friends with like 90 year olds you know it's like I think that's kind of a gift of sobriety right is that like you have this common bond with people that you would never have before but on such a deep level and yeah I'm really protective of who I spend my time with because I know when I'm around somebody who's kind of like sucking my energy in the way that I used to surround myself with people in the past where I felt like I needed to keep up or like put up a facade and, and do all of that. So mm-hmm. um, I have like a close group of girlfriends and then I have, you know, friends through my husband. I have friends through our job and like I've met people just through doing podcasting who I've become friends with. So I would say like my core group is small, but then I have a lot of different kind of compartments.
4: I know there's not much socializing in 2020 at least, but prior to that, is it difficult to be in social situations where the norm is an L.A. party where you live and like even you go to red carpet events like are those things triggering in any way?
1: No, I love a red carpet. I love <laughs> you look a good... great on a red carpet too <laughs> thank you thank you I love it it's like give me all the fashion and the shoes I know you can relate do the makeup but then at midnight I'm like okay I'm done I'm like done, get the right? shit off me and take me home but yeah no I do not get triggered in those kind of environments I mean I think if I were going to parties where there was like a pile of cocaine and everyone's like r- ripping lines right. I would be like and this is not very comfortable right But um, it's interesting. You know, I really got to this place with alcohol, at least. I don't know about drugs where, you know, I feel neutral. I don't feel like I'm tempted to do it. And I'm also not like put off by it. For
4: a lot of people at the end of the day, it's a, a way to wind down and it kind
1: of becomes their only way that they know. Do you have any wind down rituals? So I do an afternoon meditation. I do TM, which I talk about all the time. And uh, I always say like people probably check out and their eyes glaze over if you say meditation or TM or any of that. But it really, I mean, talk about like helping with my anxiety and that separateness that I felt from people around me in the world and and myself. So I know you
4: talk a lot about it on your podcast, but can you break mm-hmm. down trans- transcendental meditation,
1: right? <laughs> TM. It's 20 minutes of meditation twice a day in silence. And it's mantra based. So you go to a TM center learn from a teacher there. And it's very simple, very effortless. I was doing guided meditations, and I felt like they were relaxing, but they weren't really helping me. And from the first day that I did TM, which was maybe almost three years ago, it was like, overnight life-changing just in terms of helping with my anxiety, helping with tension. I had a TM teacher on my podcast and she used the analogy of like doing the laundry of your brain twice a day and that's exactly what it feels like for me. I'm going to do it after this, like the afternoon one. I always say this, but it's like a natural Xanax. Mm -hmm. I mean, yesterday I was feeling so tense. My shoulders were up to my ears. I'd been on my computer all day. My eyes were bloodshot and puffy. And I was like doing school and this and that. And just that feeling that you get at the end of the day from after doing work and so anxious, every cell in my body was vibrating. And I went outside and I did a 20 minute meditation. And afterwards it was like, I was a completely different person. I was in a completely different state of being state of mind. Every cell in my body was relaxed. You know, it was like turning off a switch so I do that at the end of the day and depending on school and work and all that I will cook I find it very cathartic it's kind of like my treat and that's pretty much it and then like late at the end of the day I'll do like bubble bath read light some candles, light some sage, do all of that.
4: I feel like, you know, if a regular wellness influencer came on and said meditation is like a natural Xanax, most (laughs) people would roll their eyes. But I think coming from (laughs) you, it has like a lot more credibility and specifically the TM meditation for anybody. Arielle talks about it all the time on her podcast. So that'd probably be a better place to begin to understand how it works, how you can get started. I'm a much bigger fan of silent meditations as well. But I have never had training or tools maybe to dive as deeply as I could go. But the other day I had somebody really piss me off and I went from feeling amazing to so triggered annoyed my energy just got like so bad and I was around my husband who I love and he wasn't the the problem at all but I was like too much stimulation like too much everybody coming at me went upstairs in my little meditation nook and just took like 10 minutes to myself and exactly what you said like doing laundry for your brain like I just feel like I cleanse not just my brain but my whole body of everything that I had like taken on throughout Mm -hmm. the day the positive the negative the so much energy like if you're I think you and I are both very sensitive and we take on the energies around us, which could leave us deplete. Having Mm -hmm. that time to literally, I just sat in silence. I did a little bit with like a sound bowl because that really, I don't know if you ever work with sound, but Mm -hmm. it's like a brain massage.
1: Yeah, that sounds so good. (laughs) You're like speaking my language right now. I'm
4: (laughs) I'm not as good as daily as I have been, but when you need it and it's there and you know how to grab for that tool, Mm -hmm. it's like... Oh, I'm so grateful because I didn't have any of these tools either. I mean, I've never had addiction to alcohol, but I mean, it was certainly like my vice for a long time and it Mm -hmm. never made me feel better. You know, I just woke up feeling shitty the next day. Anyway. Okay. So then you met your husband and it seems like he's been a really positive impact on your life from business to self-worth to, I don't know, all the things, right? Like, do you feel like he has a very positive impact on you,
1: yes. He definitely does. Yeah, he's kind of like my biggest cheerleader, but he really has kind of given me the confidence and the support to go after my dreams. You know, he's kind of like, I, I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but he's kind of like my safety, yeah. And you know, he he believes in me so much. And because he has so much more life experience and different perspective, and he's so much older, (laughs) he's the best person to go to for advice. He is able to see things differently from how I see them because I see them as, okay, I'm like in my mid thirties and this should be happening with my career and this and this and this and that. And, And, you know, like we feel like we have to have everything figured out by now and that we Mm -hmm. should be like the most successful people in the world, and like he didn't start getting successful until he was around my age a little bit later. Wow, yeah. So he he's just so supportive. He's on the
4: other side too. Yes. I told you this when we when we first met. Your age difference. I don't know how many years it is, but it didn't didn't make me bat an eye because oh, yeah my, yeah my dad and my stepmom are thirty years apart, and that's yeah. that's been my whole life. But to that same token, I've while I've never actually heard people say nasty things about her because of her age and the difference. I'm very aware of the conversations that have been going on since I was six years old. Mm -hmm. And I also was the only person that knew what that relationship looked like on the inside. So Mm -hmm. for me, I mean, to call somebody, you know, a gold digger or these things is just so oversimplifying what a relationship is and the way two people can create safety for each other and the age doesn't matter sometimes that just that just works and it seems to really work for you guys but I have seen people say those awful things to you and there are certainly wives in or husbands I don't know could go either way that spend their husband's money you know like quote Mm -hmm. unquote but if the couple's the same age like if Evan and I like we're we're five years apart like nope Mm -hmm. you know and I'm spending money on our credit card is anybody like I'm spending his money like what is the difference <laughs> you're a, you're a freaking married couple. Like it's so it's such a weird mentality to think that like because of the age difference, you spending your money is like any different. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think it just kind of like discounts so many things like so you're saying that he has no good qualities other than the fact that he has money <laughs> and that I have no good qualities other than the fact that I'm young and so these are the only two reasons possibly that we would ever want to be together <laughs> you know it's like so oversimplified but I don't think there's much rationalizing with the people who like fire off these kinds of comments but yeah I remember I got a message this is a couple years ago this is how much they stick with me right yeah, um, I was in New York and I got like a facial and I put it on my Instagram story and someone was like oh my God, you're like spending your husband's money getting facials. And I'm like, so a 30, 33 at the time, 33 year old woman can't go get a facial without like, without it meaning that her husband is paying, paying for, for it, like it, who has a career. I mean, come on. like right. And meanwhile,
4: mean, <laughs> like she's talking to you via your business account that right. you show up on every single day, posting content, doing your yeah. own job. So there's also that, that you know, it's also just a funny thing for me to hear people say that to you because it's so obvious how hard you work from school to, well, you're back to school now, but, mm-hmm. you know, doing, influencing full-time, podcasting, the stuff takes a lot of time. Time out of
1: the day, <laughs> more mm-hmm. than people you know realize. that I think so. And there's a lot of money there. I want to say that because so many people are like, "Well, what are you going to do for your real job?" Mm-hmm. Or like, "How do you afford to like you know go to a go on a trip with your girlfriends?" It's like I, I work, and this stuff pays really well when you work hard. At it. <laughs> so. Right. It's not
4: easy work. I think that's also kind of this idea, like, "Oh, you just take a picture," mm-hmm. but when you produce good content on for a brand, the money is. Good. Just Mm -hmm. as if you do good work anywhere, you're there's gonna be that reward for it. Okay, just pivoting a little bit for the sake of time here. Mm-hmm. You're really open about all things orthorexia and plastic surgery. You really tell it all, which I truly appreciate, because most importantly, like we said, I sent people to your page. You look awesome all of the time, but you're also like, Yes, this shit is expensive and I did not wake up like this. And I just like appreciate that so much <laughs> compared to the people that are just like, Yes, this is how how I woke up or like have caked on concealer, but haven't told us. And we just think their skin is so you know smooth like that. So I'm sure you get a ton of shit for sharing that. Does that ever make you want to stop either doing it or talking about it?
1: Not really. So I mean, that's partially why I said earlier, like I'll put stuff on TikTok that I won't put on Instagram. I don't know why I feel like I can deal with it better over there than on Instagram. Maybe it's something about like showing people that actually know me, you know, these videos that I'll put up of like my brow lift or my lip lift or whatever. Um, even though everybody knows that I do it and I talk about it all the time and I'll throw up before and after pictures, but I understand that people are entitled to their privacy and, and I totally get it. Like people want to get cosmetic procedures and not talk about it. But I think the Instagram and influencing world and celebrities that are on social media. And I mean, it's like so many people are doing this. It's so much smoke and mirrors. And I realized that there was really nobody who was talking about this stuff, at least a few years ago, like when I first shared it, when I got my nose job, this was in 2017. And I just kind of felt like, well, why not, you know? Why not share with people like what's actually happening now over the last couple of years? There's so many more like doctors and Instagrams that are showing these procedures. And I feel like if I go on my Explore feed, it's like all plastic <laughs> surgery stuff. I'm like that's really what I'm looking at. But I just kind of wanted to be like a resource because I know that there are so many people who are interested and who want to do this stuff and get misled mm-hmm. and go the wrong way. And that's like a such a big problem now, the marketing and social media. And anybody can buy followers and put up a before and after picture of Bella Hadid and be like I'm an expert you know and somebody will go put strings in their face you've really
4: like whistleblown on that whole trend of threading which yeah it's like you're not just for somebody listening that's maybe never listened to any of your episodes before you're not just like I got a nose job and it's amazing or I got this and this and it's all perfect you're like no I did this I wish I didn't do this Uh, Mm -hmm. this is actually more temporary it doesn't come out good it's a waste of money so I appreciate any person who's willing to just show up as themselves and own it. And you do just that for me. So I appreciate that. So what are you back to school for? Just tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, now I don't know. Now I'm not trying to have any super lofty goals and put any labels on it. I'm just going back. As I mentioned earlier, I dropped out of Syracuse and then I would like randomly take classes here and there and try to string something together before I got sober. And I could never quite figure it out. I couldn't follow through. And when I got sober, I was 28 and I felt like 28 is too late to go back to school, you know, almost 30. It's like the end of the world. And so I didn't do it. And it's just something that really nagged at me over the years. And I think some of that just comes from, you know, I grew up in not an academic family, but that was something that was important to my family. And it was important to me before I found drugs and alcohol. It just felt like this unfulfilled Thing. You know, I didn't have any closure on it. And I would always hear people who are sober talk about going back to school and getting their master's or getting their doctorate or whatever. And I was like, I want to do that, you know, and it was just that voice inside. And so when the pandemic started, I had the time and I was like, I'm just going to go back online. So I started doing that. So undergrad, kind of like general, not specific. Finishing my undergrad, majoring in psychology. Yeah. But I was taking all the science classes that I would need for like med school or maybe dietetics or something. And so I like killed myself last year doing that. You were in like chemistry and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I did biology, chemistry, calculus, all of this after not being in school Arielle. for 15 years. <laughs> and I got a 4.0, I want to say. Well, I'm not surprised. Like I said, you are are brilliant <laughs> in so many ways. Thank you. I think I needed to show myself that I was capable of doing that. But I also, you know, I actually podcasted with Kelsey Patel. Mm -hmm. I know she was on your show, too. She was like, well, why don't we just turn the tables a little bit? Like, what's so stressful for you right now? And I was like, I'm putting so much pressure on myself. And I like had this moment where I was like, I'm doing this to myself. So now I... Like I was telling you kind of off mic before I'm trying to take a step back and be like, I'm going to take a few classes this semester and then I'll take a few then and like see what I can put together and not be so strict.
4: Well, congratulations on going back to school. Not easy ever, but especially in your 30s. I'm sure all the students are a lot younger or I would imagine maybe not.
1: Well, it's hard to say because it's all been online, which is kind of nice. I think it's kind of a mix. But yeah, there were definitely classes where like we would do Zoom orientation, and I'm like, I'm your mom. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, and then, but also follow me on TikTok.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're actually it's my prime true. audience over there. I, I know. Like, actually, you're my demo. Listen to my podcast. <laughs> I mean,
4: when I was in grad school taking those classes or going into back to grad school, taking all those really hard classes, that was a full-time job. So yeah. you're telling me you're doing that on top of the podcast, on top of Instagram, on top of your blog. You do them all amazingly because you're a, I think, recovering perfectionist, you call yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy for me to say, of course, sitting here, but of course, you're going to end up just like completely bamboozled for lack of a better word by the end of it
1: yeah i did like five classes last semester let's see i did four classes and then i did one like half semester class which was like an intense math class um for six weeks so yeah by december i was like well this is not sustainable like i cannot do this for another year especially if i want to focus on my career the way i want to and say yes to opportunities that are coming my way so i think for me finding the middle ground it's so hard for me because i am a person who works in extremes and i am a perfectionist i'm working on that so i'm learning
4: and I think that's a beautiful place to be. And I'm actually going to nix the question that I came here with because <laughs> it's about the future. It sounds okay. like you're doing a really good job. Just thank you. First of all, just your recent past has is just just deserves a huge applaud where we don't need to rush into the future. So I'll skip your future and just wait f- to watch it unfold myself. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> My last question is, do you think that everything happens for a reason? Yes. Beautiful. Just yeah. Just straight up. Yes. We'll leave it at that. Well, thank you, Ariel, so much for your time. Um, I'm linking all of your information below. Big warning, you will binge listen to her podcast. I mean, the range of topics, the juicy guests. I like your solo episodes personally. So I do recommend you start there and follow along as Ariel takes on the world. Thank you
1: so much for having me.
2: Thank you. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one.